is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. Thank you so much for joining us today. This month, we here at the Voice of America celebrate 60 years since the launch of the English to Africa service. Oh, this is Upfront on the Voice of America. The hot, hot. Upfront is a show that explores. If you've been a fan for as many years as we have been on air, you remember that that is how we used to open the show with Nadia Sami, my co-host at the time. Yes, cheers. <laughs> clink, clink. We engage you, the listener, and interact on a different topic each week. And over the years, we have covered the continent as it continues to undergo this rapid transformation from politics, major events like the Arab Spring. <laughs> Young people are using their voices to challenge some of the region's long-serving authoritarian regimes. And since our launch 16 years ago, our audience has grown exponentially with millions tuning into our program via our FM and shortwave frequencies and through our affiliate stations around the continent. However, one of the most important changes in the last decade has been the growth of social media. Studies show a steady increase in viewers and listeners accessing our shows via the internet on popular podcasting platforms like Facebook, Twitter, which is now X, and streaming platforms like Spotify, Google, and many others. We recognize the fact that the you know majority of people on the continent are young men and women, right? Uh, that's the demographic. And the majority of those people are on social media. Steve Ferry is the Africa Division Internet Managing Editor. The majority of those people who are young, who are on social media, that's their primary source of news. That's their primary source of news. So we're trying to uh, move our digital focus and our operations from really maybe more of a web-centric approach to a digital, so to a social media-centric approach to cater to to that uh, demographic reality. The rapid adoption of these technologies has not only transformed how we access information, it has given us new ways to interact with our audience. And as such, we have had to change from our traditional styles of gathering, packaging, and distributing news to modern internet-based journalism. Facebook is by far and has been for a long time really the leader in terms of social media. That has started to change a little bit. We've seen a big uh, increase in consumption of our content on Instagram with Reels and also YouTube Shorts, which um, basically mirror what's happening on TikTok. Again, really, really short format uh, videos, short format products, short format ideas. But as we have seen over the years, on many occasions, governments on the continent have tended to crack down and block civil society efforts to publish and access information that advocates for human rights and democratic reforms. As an example, in 2014, Ethiopian authorities arrested six bloggers affiliated with the Zone 9 Collective, which was a group of writers and journalists that were using blogging to tell stories about the situation in their country. After their release in 2015, I spoke to one of the bloggers, Soliana Shimeles Gebremariam. She joined me on the show to talk about her experience. Okay, the online bloggers is a collection of a blogging group. So we are nine, nine in number, so nine people who know each other in the inter- on the internet and starts writing on the internet. We also used to go to prison and visit them different journalists uh, arrested for their work. So 
the prison collective prison in Ethiopia it's got eight zones mm-hmm. I mean they do have different eight zones so we used to visit the eighth zone with a, with a woman journalist arrested there her name is Rio Salamu and then on that conversation she told us like the the zone or the the prison got eight zones but they consider Ethiopia as a ninth zone the bigger prison which is the whole which country still has a problem yeah which still has a problem with freedom of expression and fundamental rights so they call us like oh this guy came from zone nine and we were okay fine this is a very interesting name so why can't we use it for our blog and then we decide okay we can call our our, our blog zone nine so it basically gives an impression that the fundamental rights are really not there in ethiopia and it's just a bigger prison and the other is we are also nine so uh, i would see how uh, the leadership uh, the political leadership in the country would take offense at, at being referred as uh, as a prison that's why they arrested us i guess <laughs> and so so what happened there after after you you, you had been blogging and writing and, and engaging each other yeah. uh on on social media around issues you know political and social issues well, how did the government react so on the earlier days the government didn't react at all because we used to write some blog i mean of course they blocked ourselves we website not to be not to be accessed in countries. So when they blocked our website, we started using the social media channels. Like we copy paste all the messages that we have on Facebook and we tweet them the main things that we tweet the main topics that we have on our on our on our website. So we started to use more of social media tools because the website is not accessible in Ethiopia. That is an interview from 2015 featuring Soliana Shimelis Gebre Mariam. She was one of the six bloggers affiliated with the Zone Nine Collective, which was a group of writers and journalists in Ethiopia are using blogging to tell stories about their situation in the country. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. We are marking 60 years of serving our audience around the continent and in the diaspora. One of my favorite authors is Kenyan literally giant Ngugi Wathiongo, known as one of Africa's most important contemporary writers and intellectuals. Ngugi has made significant contributions to the fields of literature, theater, and cultural studies. Most of his books, including Whip Not Child, The River Between, and Petals of Blood, are considered African classic literature. Ngugi, who recently turned 85, often addresses themes of colonialism, independence, cultural identity, and many others in his work while using literature as a tool for social change. And in our conversation about his book titled Something Torn and New, An African Renaissance, Ngugi spoke to me about what he says is a cultural fragmentation of Africa. He told me that we need to serve Africa's cultural future. This negative attitude towards ourselves become normalized and they may translate into, oh, we have nothing, we have no originality. So even when you, an, an educated African person may have a PhD, he may still not have the confidence that arises from knowing that that PhD is somehow also arises from um, his entire relation to his own culture and languages and so on. In other words, he sees that PhD, uh, that achievement, as a tribute to his connection with European languages and cultures and so on. Of course, I want to add very, very emphatically that there's nothing wrong in any person knowing, his, knowing as many languages as possible. And it's very important for people 
to be very effective in whatever language is the, lang- the language of power. What is basically wrong in terms of policies and personal practices is to assume that one's own language and cultures have nothing to give. It should be po- it's the other way around is what's more empowering. You know your own language, then you add as many languages as you can right. to that language and so on. So that way you are empowered. But the other way around is one of enslavement. Because when you know many languages in the world and you have no idea about your own language and so on, you are shut out of the community. Right. Then to me, that seems to be enslavement and enslavement. Now, in this book, you say that the, the African Renaissance began at the historical moment. Uh, which was a catalyst to resistance movements across the continent, movements like the Mau Mau in Kenya, the ANC in South Africa, and many others around the continent. And you talk about the turning point of the of Afro-modernity being the 1945 Manchester Congress, uh, which you say provided a, a momentum to the 50s and the 60s liberation movements. What would you say happened to those movements in the subsequent years, the 80s and the 90s? The idea of Africa, when Europeans first came, or colonizers came to our own countries, we fought against them as individual communities. So uh, if it's uh, Yoruba, they fought against the colonial invasions as Yorubas and so on. But once we were occupied, there came a moment when we were no longer struggling against the colonial presence as individual linguistic communities, but rather as all the communities in a given territory. Mm-hmm. Not even that, we began to think ourselves in terms of a continent of African peoples. So whether we're in Kenya or, or, um, or South Africa or West Africa, we talked about Africa, okay? So that's what I mean when the idea of Africa begins to be the organizing principle. It becomes a collective, right? Yeah, it becomes a collective. We are now where it's, we moved a higher level. And not only that, it's very interesting that the, that idea of Africa, as I've tried to explain in the book, in a way was born abroad by those Africans who were already detached from the continent through mm. enslavement. Because they could think of Africa as a whole. So Marcus Garvey could talk about Africa for Africans at home and abroad, for instance. Mm. Du Bois and others could also talk about Africa as a whole. And that idea of Africa then also becomes an organizing force in nationalist, anti-colonial struggles. ANC called itself African National Congress. And there are many others who called themselves uh, national conventions or congresses also all over Africa. So that's what, this is what I'm talking about, the idea of Africa becoming an organizing uh, force. And when I say that the African Renaissance has begun, is I'm including the, the whole question and practices, the whole anti-colonial movement, because that's very, very important. And the achievement of independence was a monumental gate, obviously. But it's only one stage in a process, okay? It's a thief, uh we got independence. We got to go through the next two stages of national, in a way, liberation from, uh, you know, from 
a sense of being dependent on others, and also the stage of social revolution within our own societies, so that our people really, really are at the basis, and they are also the objective of development. So I see the African Renaissance as something which is continuous, which is going on all the time. That was Ngugi Wathiongo, one of Africa's most important contemporary writers and intellectuals. He was talking to me about his novel, Something Torn and New, an African Renaissance. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. Let's take a quick break and hear some of your voices and well wishes that you sent in from around the continent to mark our 60th anniversary. Yo, yo, yo. You are listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. You hear me? With Jackson Vungani. Hello, I'm enjoying your program. I'm Richard Martin Smolke from Nigeria, Taraba State, Diambu, Southern Local Government. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Liz Kemigisha from Kampala, Uganda, and I love listening to Upfront. Happy 60 years anniversary to VOA Africa. Congratulations. My name is Bob William from Bene City, Nigeria. I want to thank the management and staff of Voice of America for the good works that you're doing and continue keep up the good works. You know, I mean, we'll be staying out there listening to your. Welcome back. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. As we continue with our celebration of the English to Africa Service's 60th anniversary, on Upfront, we are looking back at our coverage of some of the most significant stories of the last decade. And let's go back to early 2010, when Nigeria's then-president, Musa Yaradua, was hospitalized in Saudi Arabia. After weeks out of the public eye, rumors of his death were denied by his office, and political analysts at the time feared that the country was on a path to political crisis due to the power vacuum, and his death was later confirmed after three months. To contextualize what was happening at the time, I reached out to Nigerian writer and Nobel laureate Wallace Shoyinka. I asked him to reflect on this and other issues that were happening in his country. Recently, we spoke to uh, President, uh, former President uh, Obasanjo about some of the political issues uh, in Nigeria. Um, and one of the contentious issues, of course, was the, 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 the power vacuum that existed when uh, the late uh, President Yaradua was, in, in, was hospitalized and there was some sort of a power vacuum. And it seemed to me that uh, this is something that constitutionally they didn't forecast to happen. How do you characterize some of the political events in Nigeria in the past couple of months? Uh, let me begin by commenting on um, the, uh, and what... Uh, Former President Obasanjo is alleged to have said in recent times, I mean, in fact, has said, you know, uh, most of the, and this, of course, is related to the kind of power, um, the uncertain and rather untidy uh, power uh, tussle, uh, if you can use that expression, it's a bit on the strong side, but still, it was a, a <laughs> period of great uncertainty. Right. And I consider Obasanjo to have laid the seeds for those. Uh, uh, those active anomalies which we've been uh, 
experienced in, in recent times. Um, the anti-democratic uh, venture was completely bastardized and degraded uh, under a bastardor. The culture of uh, uh, rigged elections uh, became accentuated under his uh, eight-year uh, uh, rule. And, uh, in fact, uh, you know, the, the whole issue of uh, the power vacuum uh, was, of course, for me, uh, a complete artificial one, which is uh, accentuated again by those whom he had placed in position, very often in a most undemocratic way. So let me just say that I, I would rather make my own comments without reference to what he happened to say, because I hold him responsible for much of the agony that Nigeria has been undergoing. The, the, the political problems uh, that have been in Nigeria for the past couple of years, you mean? Yes, that's, that's quite correct. Okay. And uh, the, uh, the, kind of, um, the kind of government which was run by his political party, PDP, uh, yeah, these really are largely responsible for the, the intolerable political condition which we experiencing in Nigeria. And it's the, the, the culture of illegality that he established. And I mean that very seriously, the culture of illegality, the practice of illegalities in government. This is what was carried over by that macabre episode that we've just undergone, where a president who was obviously terminally ill and I'm not just saying this because he's dead now. I mean, this is something which we said and wrote at the time that the former president was no longer capable of ruling the country. Uh, the people around him knew this. They continued to lie and lie uh, to the nation, uh, create all kinds of uh, fantasy scenarios that never did take place of the president, former late president doing this and doing that. It's all a lie. And it's, it's ironic, and it's ironic that uh, somebody like Obasanjo should be one of those who, um, who then found himself compelled to demand that the truth be told to the people. But I'm sorry, the culture of lying to people, of deceit, deceitful uh, governance, uh, began and reached its apogee under his regime. That's, that really was the irony of uh, his making statements, which happened to tally with mo what most people uh, were thinking and saying and uh, demanding. That was Nigerian writer Wallace Shoyinka way back in 2011. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. We're looking back at some of the highlights of our show since its launch in 2007 to date. So much has happened over the years, and we have covered local and global events that have had an impact on the African continent. In August of 2011, the Martin Luther King Jr. National Memorial in Washington, D.C. was unveiled to the public after more than 20 years of planning and building, and thousands of people attended the opening ceremony. At the time, I reached out to Professor Ali Mazrui, a prominent Kenyan scholar and historian. Professor Mazrui had met Dr. King when he was still a student in the 1960s. I reached him to reflect on this historic moment. Um, have, you, have you had a chance to travel down? Are you 
are you hoping to travel down to see the memorial yourself? Yeah, oh yeah, well at some stage definitely. Yeah. Uh, uh, I look forward to that. So, oh, okay. Uh, I won't be able to be uh, at the unveiling ceremony. Right. Uh, but it's the sort of thing one ought to make a pilgrimage to. Absolutely. Now let me ask you, did you ever see this happening in your lifetime? No, I never expected uh, this kind of tribute. Uh, it's true, we were very pleased by the recognition of the Martin Luther King holidays. So that itself was very historic. Uh, uh, and then that began to make us optimistic uh, that he will get the national recognition he deserves. Okay. Uh, and and we may be on the way there. What are some of your memories of uh, Martin Luther King at the time? Uh, I I think is uh, you were in college, if I'm not uh, mistaken, during that time. Uh, yes, and uh, and uh, it also coincided with my uh, American phase of my education, which included uh, some time at Columbia University, and uh, I did have an opportunity to meet him. So. Uh, I was staying at a place called International House, uh, and uh, we were, the International House was invited to send a small delegation of resident, resident students uh, to a special dinner which was taking place to be addressed by Martin Luther King. Uh, so I was among those chosen to attend, uh, and then after the dinner, uh, I was introduced to him. So it was it was very nice. I, I even uh, uh, managed to get uh, my card autographed, but I uh, lost it long mm -hmm. ago. But, uh, and we exchanged a few words about Kenya. He knew quite a bit about Kenya. So the, I was introduced to him as a Kenyan student, uh, and we discussed uh, the march towards independence in Kenya. Uh, and he knew someone called Tom Mboya. Tom Mboya, yes. Yes, so he was the second most famous Kenyan at the time after Kenyatta. Mm. And they knew each other very well. Uh, so we discussed Mboya a bit. And uh, in retrospect, it was very sad that both of them were later assassinated. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but that's a, a fate they shared uh, eventually. Now, did you uh, understand that you were, being, you were part of history at that time? Well, I understood he was a very important man. I didn't, I didn't realize uh, how big a figure in history he was going to become, but I knew he was uh, a leading African-American uh, and uh, highly thought of uh, by other societies abroad. Uh, so since then, in retrospect, is even bigger than we imagined at that time. That was the late Professor Ali Mazrui, a prominent Kenyan scholar and historian, Professor Mazrui authored numerous books, including the television documentary The Africans, a triple heritage, which addressed Western, Islamic, and indigenous influences on Africa. At the time of his death, Mazrui was an Albert Schweizer professor in the humanities and director of the Institute of Global Cultural Studies at Binghamton University. Upfront on the Voice of America, my name is Jackson Vungani. Let's go to South Africa, where singer Yvonne Chaka Chaka is a renowned singer, songwriter, humanitarian, and businesswoman. 
But beyond her career, Yvonne Chakachaka has been actively involved in humanitarian work and advocating for various social causes. When I spoke to her at the time, she was using her platform to raise awareness about issues such as HIV AIDS, malaria and women's rights. It's just been so um, good, humbling. Um, it's been, like, inspiring to see women, as I said, just extraordinary women, not sitting there crying and feeling sorry for themselves, but going out there and being beacons of light to their communities as well, empowering each other, helping each other. Hello there, this is Mom Yvonne Chaka Chaka. Well, I just say Mom Chaka Chaka because this is a youth radio and you're listening to Upfront with Jackson. Young boys and girls will say, what's up? That was South Africa's legendary musician Yvonne Chaka Chaka. She joined us here in studio a couple of years ago. And let's stay in South Africa for our final look back. I would be remiss if I didn't bring back this interview with former South African President Thabo Mbeki, who spoke to me about his efforts to persuade the leaders of the northern and southern Sudan to reach an agreement that granted South Sudan independence. So we came to Washington to talk to the administration, uh, to talk to Congress, and, and to talk also to the general public in the United States, given the level of interest uh, in, the, in the Sudan matter. So that's, that's what's brought us to, uh, to the U.S. And speaking of uh, the referendum, the next step in the comprehensive peace agreement right now, uh, what type of commitments have you received from the stakeholders themselves, uh, both the, the, prim- the principal parties, the NCP and the SPLM, that they are committed to seeing through uh, the referendum and also talk about the timetable, the timing of it? Well, I mean, as as you know, the, uh, the 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 parties have agreed. The NCP and the SPLM agreed uh, in the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, the CPA, that uh, the referendum should take place in January, January 2011, uh, and they they remain committed. Uh, they remain committed to uh, uh, holding the referendum as scheduled uh, on on that 11th. And indeed, because of that level of commitment, both of them have asked the United Nations, particularly UNMIS, the United Nations mission in Sudan, they've asked the UN to intervene by way of support for that referendum process, so that indeed the referendum takes place as scheduled, and as I was saying earlier, uh, so that it is held in a manner that uh, it, it is credible, <clears throat> that it is free and fair, that everybody is satisfied at the end of it, that uh, uh, the outcome uh, truly reflects uh, the will of the people of, of, of South Sudan. Now, the two sticking issues so far is, one, the, the referendum commission has not been set up yet. Uh, the issue of uh, the north-south border, the Abia Commission has not been set yet. Uh, what type of conversations have you had with uh, the leadership in both South and you know in, in the northern Sudan so far on those two commissions? Because um, speaking uh, when uh, the SPLM Secretary General recently, Paganamon, said uh, 
the referendum commission has not been set up because the North is kind of impeding the process. Uh, what is your take on that so far? No, I mean, the, the, uh, <clears throat> yes, you are quite right. The, they haven't finalized the process of establishing the, the South Sudan uh, referendum commission uh, and indeed the, the, the RBA referendum commission. But with regard to the South Sudan referendum commission, the dispute is about one person. They've agreed on everybody uh, on the commission. Uh, there's one person, there's one particular person, uh, and the objection is coming from the SPLM, uh, who are saying now, can the NCP please nominate somebody else, somebody different? So, uh, and I'm quite sure that uh, indeed uh, this matter will be resolved because it's not, uh, it's not a major issue, it's just a matter of one personality. That was former South African president and anti-apartheid icon, President Tabombeki. A few months after this interview, South Sudan was born as the youngest country on the continent. And with that, we come to the end of our show, looking back at the last 16 years of the Upfront show as part of a larger celebration to mark VOA English to Africa's 60th anniversary. And remember that these were just a few of the hundreds of African innovators, change makers, and leaders that we have featured on the show over the years. And to hear others like these, visit our page at voaafrica.com slash upfront to catch up on previous episodes. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Let's connect again tomorrow, same time, right here on The Voice of America.